HelloFresh makes dinner time a snap with deliciously easy options that will please everyone at your table. I recently made Chipino. It was better than in an expensive restaurant that we had been to, and this is honestly true. I ordered it again the next week because it was so good. I highly, highly recommend it. Get 16 free meals plus free shipping with code SISTERS at HelloFresh.com SISTERS16. Everyone can also find the link in our show notes. Hello, New York. Let's hear it. We are super excited to be just slightly off-Broadway in this great theater. It's a historic theater, and you're a great audience. Just keep up the energy to keep us going here. Let me start by first saying, on Sunday, we'll be in D.C., so there's a few tickets left. Tell your friends who are there that you love the show, even if, you know, you can do it now. Start texting them. And I want to introduce everybody. I'm Jill Weinbanks. I'm Kim Atkins Store. I'm Joyce Vance. And I'm Joyce Vance. (laughs) A lot of are confusable. A lot of people do confuse us, but I'm actually Barb McQuaid. I'm flattered when I do that. So before we start, first of all, I want to tell you that there are microphones right there and right there. So start thinking about the questions you're going to ask, because we're not taking them from tweets or emails. We're taking your questions live at the end of the show. So think about what you want to ask us, and then you'll line up and ask the questions. And Barb McQuaid was host last week, and she's a professor, and she made it clear, no comments, only questions. And she cut off people. I'm nicer, but she'll, she'll step in. She'll I step have in a and microphone, sure. and I'm prepared to use it. <laughs> so we want your questions, not your comments. And before we start the show, we want to talk about New York, because we all have either lived here or just loved being here. I went to law school here, because I fell in love with it on a high school, I guess it was a college trip. And I thought New York was so romantic, I had to go to school here. And it has never disappointed me. I've gone to theater this trip. I visited with friends from Watergate and friends from law school. And I've had a great time. And we all had deli for dinner, which really was good. I was the only pastrami. They're all corned beef. But so, Kim, tell tell us what you love. Yeah, it's wonderful to be back in New York City. I feel like a bit of an expat because I did live here for a while. I, too, I went to grad school uh, here, but then I moved back. Um, And I think New York is part of the reason why I am the way that I am. I think it both... (laughs) It both toughened me up a little bit, but it also, like, softened me up a little bit, too. So the first, my first day, or the day after I moved to New York, like, as a working person, um, I was, I had just moved into an, an apartment. It was on the 20th floor. It was in 2003. Do y'all remember the blackout? 
<laughs> that happened. And so I thought, you know, the lights go out. It's middle of the afternoon. I'm thinking, okay, you know, I'll take a nap, I guess. I can't watch TV. I'll wait to see what's happening. I take the nap. I wake up. Everything is still out. And I finally find, I think I found like a radio. I had to find batteries to stick in a radio to figure out what was going on. And I realized, oh, oh, this is not just my building and it's not just my block. It's like a big chunk of the country is blacked out. And so once night fell and I thought, all right, I'm going to have to get some food. I'm going to have to actually leave. So I walked down the 20 flights of stairs and I get to the bottom and think, I don't know how I'm going to get back up there. But what I witnessed was amazing. New Yorkers are incredible. So there was a, a brick uh, oven pizza restaurant on the corner and they were, because their brick ovens could work without electricity, they were just making pizzas and giving them to people, giving people water. There were lines around like a pay phones, remember those? So that people, because <laughs> nobody's cell phone was working and they were telling people, look, if you need to contact, so I had to call my mom, if you need to contact someone, there's another one two blocks away, it has less of a line. Well, it was New Yorkers, once everybody figured out, because this was 2003, it was just two years after 9-11, that it wasn't that. Their, their number one goal was to pitch in, help each other. The bars opened up. They were emptying their tabs because they would have gone bad anyway. And it was such a spirit that really touched my heart so much. I thought, I am so lucky to live here. This really is the greatest city in the world. So I always think of that when I come back. I have absolutely nothing to say that can even compare to that. <laughs> I mean, that is such a remarkable, uplifting New York story. Uh, but I, I will say something uplifting. I love coming to New York. I love seeing my friends here. I love seeing my family here. Um, last night, I had the opportunity to visit with a great American hero, E. Jean Carroll. <laughs> She may be in the audience. I'm sort of blind up here. I can't see. Um, but I'm just going to say, oh, where are you, ladies e. and gentlemen, Woo! E. Jean Carroll. Jean is sort of like the indomitable spirit of this city that Kim just talked about and the sort of thing that gives me hope. So it's an honor and a pleasure to be in New York with all of you. Um, you guys help me keep the faith. Thank you for letting us be here with you. Well, man, I can't compete with that. When I come to New York, I just sort of <laughs> eat my way through the city. What, what an incredible city. I love coming to New York as well. And, you know, the two things, I guess they go to pr primal instincts, the food. I love it. As uh, Jill said, we had a great deli meal uh, earlier today. Um, I love all of the delicacies of New York. Um, but the other thing I love about New York is the people. I walked for blocks and blocks and blocks today just to see the incredible diversity of people 
and I love it. I love to see you know, people from every country in the world speaking all different kinds of languages. Uh, it's a great reminder that we all have more in common than we have differences. And I think there's just a, such a vibrancy when you see all of those people here together, living together, that it gives me hope for uh, American diversity. We are extremely grateful that E. Jean is here. And because I'm known for my pins, E. Jean, I have a Me Too pin for you because, to me, you are the hero of the Me Too movement. So before we uh, get to our topics, which are going to be terrific, you're going to love what we've picked for you tonight, uh, I think it's important to think about so, so many different things, including the fact that we do have merch. So, <laughs> when we're done here, there's still going to be some left. I'm pretty sure there's some left. It's been selling fast. Um, we have sisters-in-law pins, although I don't know if we you have them on site. You don't know if it's site. been selling fast. What are you talking sister -in -law about? Sisters-in-law pins. <laughs> Got to talk about the pins. T-shirts, all sorts of things. So, enjoy that, and uh, we'll look forward to your, your doing that. And... I want to start with just talking more about New York and, and what we've, we've done here. Just some brief remarks before we get to the serious subjects. And uh, as I said, I, I came to New York for law school in part because of seeing Barefoot in the Park with Jane Fonda. And Ron. I, I fell in love. I thought it was so romantic that I had to go to school here. And I've never loved more than being at the theater in New York. I saw Life of Pi, and it was... Anybody seen it? It was really magical. I really loved it. And I'm going to see a matinee tomorrow of Prima Facia, which is a one-woman barrister show. So it's going to be great. And it's just, it's so much fun to be here. But Kim, I was here in the first blackout, before there were cell phones. So it wasn't that they couldn't work. There just were none. I took a handsome cab to my, I lived at um, 382 Central Park West, 96th and Central Park West. And I worked at 59th, and I had to take a, a handsome cab. It was the only way to get home. Wow. Subways weren't working. Right. It was very romantic and wonderful. Uh, if only I'd had a good husband at the time, it would have been good. But anyway, <laughs> those of you who read my book know what I'm talking about. Um, so, uh, Kim, anything you want to add? Um, I love, you know, I'm a fashion person, so when I'm here, I tend to shop. She made her dress. She designed it herself. I did. I did. I did. Um, yeah, no, the shopping in New York is good. It's like, what else can I say? I might spend a little time doing that, uh, you know, tomorrow. Don't tell my husband. What about you, Joyce? I'm going to tell your husband. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before Barb McQuaid can out me, which she's been doing lately, I'm just going to acknowledge that I knit any time that I'm sitting around and talking. Thank you, knitters in the room. Um, so I'm hoping to spend a little bit of time tomorrow in some yarn stores. I have plans to go to Pearl Soho and maybe a couple of others. What you up to tomorrow? Well, I was hoping maybe to go for a run in Central Park. Ooh, though I know there one. might be some rain in the forecast, but weather permitting, um, I think I'll give that a go. Chelsea flea market for me. <laughs> <laughs> so we have some really great topics for you today. We're going to be talking about, um, I'm sure you won't be surprised, Rudy Giuliani. One of the pins I'm wearing tonight is a clothespin because I had to hold it on my nose in order to read the, 
complaint, so it seems appropriate, but we, it is an important issue. And then we're going to talk about what's our second subject? Our second subject is mifeprestone, and not just the drug and the abortion issues, but the complications and other parts that will happen as a result of what the courts are doing in this case. And then we're going to talk about something that will be more personal about sexual assault, sexual harassment, bullying, and how to deal with those kinds of conflicts and what it means to us. And, but mostly talking about solutions. How do you deal with it in a good and healthy way? Jill, there's a new member in my family, um, and that family member's name is Lomi, Lomi Store. Um, have you used Lomi? I have. We all have Lomi, and Lomi has become a family member. It's quite remarkable, and it's good for the environment. We all know it's too easy to leave full trash bins at home when we're away and when we're at home. <laughs> but we found the perfect way to keep our places clean that also make a difference for the environment. It's called Lomi. Lomi has made cooking at home even more enjoyable, and it also aligns with our values, right? We all want to try and be more green. That's because with Lomi, you can turn waste into nutrient-rich dirt to feed to your plants, your lawn, or your garden. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane gas, so we get to help the environment and make our lives easier and prettier when all of our flowers bloom. Now all of our food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers in the back of your refrigerator can go back into the ecosystem. And even better, you can grow more nutritious food in your backyard. You know, so I have chickens, some of you probably know that. They will eat a lot of food scraps, but there are some things that they don't eat. And we put all of that stuff in Lomi, and it's a fabulous way to get rid of those last scraps. We really like Lomi in our house. And it feels so great knowing there's no food rotting in your garbage and smelling up your kitchen. Thanks to Lomi, I only have to take out the garbage once a week. It's a hassle-free, mess-free experience. Imagine having no more leaky bags. There's no smell when it runs, and it's really quiet, making it the perfect complement to a tidy and classy-looking kitchen. And since I'm planning a lot of summer dinner parties, I don't know how I would do it without Lomi. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com SIL and use the promo code SIL to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to lomi.com slash SIL and use promo code SIL at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. Everyone can also find the link in our show notes. So we thought those would be three good topics, and Kim, why don't you lead us off? So, you know, there were a lot of things, you know, sometimes you, you see something and you kind of put it out of your mind, you think forever, you can like, you know, excise it with like an exacto blade or burn it out with bleach or something. <laughs> One of those things is, I don't know if, and if any of you guys saw the, the sequel Borat movie, <laughs> but there was a scene with the former mayor of New York, um, I, I'll just put it 
shortly, he was alone in a room with a, someone he believed Enough. to be the daughter of a Enough. foreign journalist. And <laughs> anyway, um, well, little did I know that some years later, a screen grab of that scene would be a part of a complaint uh, filed against him, asserting that he did some really awful things, including sexual abuse, sexual harassment, created a hostile work environment, wage violations against someone who he hired purportedly to uh, cover, to handle his businesses, uh, but wanted some other kind of business. So I wanted to ask my, I have so many questions for my sisters. So I want to start with you, Jill. I want to talk about the um, uh, abuse and harassment claims that she is bringing against uh, the, the former, um, against the former mayor of New York. Do you think that, especially given what we saw with the result of E. Jean Carroll's trial, what do you think the chances are uh, of this case, if she can present the evidence that she lays out in the complaint? What do you think might happen here? What are your thoughts? So I'm going to limit it just to the sexual assault stuff because a lot of her conversations are recorded. A lot of her evidence that's in the complaint says this conversation is recorded. But that doesn't relate to some of the sexual assault stuff. Um, I think that E. Jean Carroll's case was crystal clear and perfect. It was great evidence. There was, aside from her very credible testimony, there were two people she called immediately, there were two other victims of the same type of thing, and there was, after all, his access Hollywood saying, this is how I treat women. And then there were these three women who said, and that's how he treated me. In this case, it wasn't a one-time event. It was something that went on for over two years. and. There are a lot of photographs of the two of them where it seems to be a very consensual relationship. That will complicate a jury's verdict in this. It doesn't mean that you can't be assaulted. If you're dating someone, if you're married to someone, they can still rape you. And that's something we need to keep in mind. So I'm not judging her case. I'm just saying in terms of whether or not it's going to be as easy a case to prove on that particular topic, it may be a little more difficult. And still, there seems to be plenty of evidence that I think in the end, she will prevail on this. And just a follow-up, I mean, just there are points within the complaint where she asserts that she has recordings, yes. that she has that evidence. It doesn't mean that there aren't more recordings. It doesn't mean that there is not evidence. A complaint is not an evidentiary document. You still have discovery that happens, so there's still more that we can learn. Her, well, her lawyer did say that if it doesn't say it was recorded, that it wasn't, that they listed all of the things in the complaint that were recorded. So it may not be, but you know, E. Jean Carroll's case wasn't recorded. You don't need a recording to prove your testimony. And who doesn't believe that he did it? I do. I mean, <laughs> really, you saw him in Borat. I mean, and it is, it's an, it's an image you said. I mean, it's like seeing your parents have sex. You just can't yeah. get it out of your mind. It's like having his dye drip down his hair at the Four Seasons landscaping. I can't get that image out of my mind. And so, yes, I believe Jill, her. you're, you're going to put Barb down for the count. If you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, Barb, I, I want to give you a chance to chime in here, uh, react any way that you want to, but including the fact that, you know, one thing that I found was remarkable, that was remarkable about this complaint is it's a civil complaint, but I saw a lot of crimes in there being alleged. Did, did you see crimes? What did you see? I see crimes. <laughs> I see crimes wherever I go. Um, first, shout out to Kim for this line. You can't say you without saying Giuliani. <laughs> Uh, it's, um, there's so much about that complaint that is really uh, icky, but uh, I see lots of really interesting potential crimes here. I mean, one is sexual assault, and I don't know, you know unlike in the case of E. Jean Carroll, where it, you know, almost 30 years had passed, these are more recent, and so the, the, the statute of limitations has not run on the sexual assault, so there could even be a criminal case there. But in addition to that, um, it talks about... Um, how uh, he was, she says, bragged that he was selling pardons for $2 million, that he was working with President Trump on that. Now, he may have been making it up, but either way, um, you can craft a, a charge around that if there is evidence to, to support it. Now, you know, the one statement by him alone isn't enough. You would want to investigate that and see if it were true. But number one, if you were working with the president or someone on the president's staff to do that, that would be a violation of the bribery statutes. Uh, if instead he's making it up and telling people, I'll get you a pardon, just pay me $2 million, that could be the basis of a fraud case. Uh, I can remember in my, my prior work at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit, we from time to time had people who claimed to have the ability to influence government actors totally lying to people and taking their money. You know, might, they might say to someone who was a, an immigrant seeking an immigration benefit, uh, you know, if you pay me $10,000, I can get you citizenship. You know, it turned out the person was nobody, uh, no influence whatsoever, um, and, and a person would pay them. So I think that's a possibility. I also think that there is very possibly evidence of obstruction of justice or witness tampering. Uh, she alleges that when the FBI came to talk to her, he said to tell them, you don't know me, uh, don't talk to them, and delete all your messages from me. That sure sounds like obstruction of justice to me. Now again, these are just allegations, but if that can be proved and if she can testify to that, that could be some pretty powerful evidence. And one of the civil claims that she's making is wage theft, because she yeah. says she was promised a salary of a million dollars and she was never actually paid aside from very small amounts that were done in cash to keep them from uh, being uh, on the record. But Joyce, one of the things she has to prove in order to make a claim for wage theft is that she was actually an employee, that she wasn't just somebody who was hanging around. And one thing that she offers uh, as such proof is the fact that she had access to all of Giuliani's emails, emails including those to members of Trump's family, members of his administration, uh, people in all kinds of places, people that could have access to things like classified documents. Discovery won't let them get to all of it in this case. It has to be pertinent to this claim, but what do you think that treasure trove could produce? You know, it's fascinating. I think it opens up all sorts of things. And this may well be their intent, right, by doing the complaint this way. She has to prove that she's an employee and that he agreed to pay her a million dollars in order to recover that money. One suspects from reading the complaint that that's what she's the most interested in, being paid for her work. The complaint includes allegations that she had to be available 24-7 and that she really was doing legitimate work. The problem was that while she was doing legitimate work, 
She was open to being sexually assaulted by Giuliani at any point in time. And because she was coming off of a very difficult um, abusive relationship, one that was so bad that when she had gone to court to try to terminate it, she was permitted to file the suit anonymously, which suggests that she really had gone through an extremely difficult time. Um, you know, so she makes this allegation, this is my work setting. And she now has to prove up the contract. And she will, of course, be entitled to discovery in order to prove it. I mean, it's not just Giuliani's emails, which he, by the way, loads onto her computer so she will have access. It is former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, two former Secretaries of State, the former Director of the FBI, Louis Free, inner circle members of the Trump cabinet and his family members. I think treasure trove is not an overstatement, right? <laughs> it looks to me like it's a smart legal strategy. It puts him a little bit on the horns of a dilemma, but not just Giuliani. All of those people whose emails are sitting on his computer, and perhaps there will be a, a white knight or a group of knights who will come along and save Giuliani from himself and pony up whatever it takes to settle this case and prevent discovery from going forward. If it does go forward, I think it's going to be jaw-dropping in the same way that the Dominion Voting Machines case really helped us learn a lot more about what was going on between Fox and, and the Trump administration. Joyce, that, that evidence you just discussed regarding the email reminds me of, did you ever used to say this in your office when you were a prosecutor? We don't catch the smart ones. <laughs> <laughs> So my, my former ATF um, special agent in charge, Jim Cavanaugh, who some of you may see from time to time on MSNBC whenever there's a school shooting, Jim used to say, if stupid was a crime, we would have to work 24-7. <laughs> I would say there's another aspect to this, which is Jack Smith is going to find this to be a treasure trove because some of this really goes directly to evidence of other crimes that he's investigating. So I think that... Don't give her... him any ideas. I, I'm hoping he's close. It doesn't feel like he needs to investigate a whole bunch of more stuff. You're done, Jack. Stop. You're done. You're ready. One of the most important lessons... One of the most important lessons a prosecutor has to learn is that sometimes enough is sufficient. And you don't have to go on forever. I investigated organized crime. I could investigate them forever and keep finding new crimes, but at some point you say, enough is ready for an indictment. I can always amend it. I can always add a second indictment. Just do it. I agree with you. Well, um, but I think in another way that this is important, this complaint could be important, that you do need more time and you do need more people speaking about it, is that it makes it easier for other people who have experienced something like this to come forward. We have learned from the Me Too movement that there is strength in numbers, that there is empowerment in time. It takes sometimes people uh, have to come to terms with things themselves and, and be able to speak about it at all, let, about, let alone try to hold someone accountable. And I think the more cases like this we see, the more that that can happen. And as I said last week, I think that it's really important too that the law comport with that and allow people to come forward in that way. So I think that that's really important here too, regardless of what happens here. But um, that was not the only uh, lawsuit that was filed against Rudy Giuliani this week. Um, 
Daniel Gill, you may remember him. He's the Staten Island man who Rudy Giuliani accused of assaulting him. He said that he hit him and it felt, what is it, felt like a boulder. Um, and like then I'd been the, shot. Like yes, I'd been like shot. he'd been shot. And then we actually saw the video and he was just giving him a little, you know, a little New York welcome, just a little pat on the back. Well, he filed suit uh, right here in Manhattan on Wednesday, accusing Giuliani of spinning a tale of political violence that led him to be arrested, to spend a night in jail, uh, and defamed him. So, defamation, that's something that we saw uh, happen recently. What do you guys think we uh, might expect from this suit? Anybody jump in. You know, it's amazing, right? In a defamation case, when you're talking about a public figure, at least, and that, that distinction has to always be made in a defamation case. But if you're talking about libeling a public figure, then you've got to prove that the statements were made either with reckless disregard for the truth or with actual knowledge of their falsity. And, and when you have video showing that this was just really a love tap, right, as much as anything else, boy, that becomes a really interesting situation. I spent a lot of time as a young lawyer doing defamation cases. I won't bore y'all with the stories. I will just say at one point when Pat Robertson was running as sort of a third party candidate for the presidency, he sued two of my firm's clients, a sitting congressman and a former congressman. And so we were off to the races with that. And the allegation involved Robertson's Korean War record. The allegation that our clients had made was that he was pulled off of a boat in Japan by his father, a US senator, to spare him from going to Korea, where the life expectancy of a young third lieutenant was about three months at that point in the war. Those are allegations where there can be two sides. And we had to do a lot of discovery to get to the bottom. When you've got a video like this, you know, these are very unusual cases. I don't know if this is a trend with defamation, where we see the situation in Dominion, we see E. Jean Carroll's case, we now see cases developing where defamation is much stronger than it typically is. Is this just something that results from the Trump era and people who were around Trump? and their willingness to use alternative facts as opposed to reality, it seems to me that that's really what this is. It's a manifestation of that entire post-truth sort of society that we seem to live in. Yeah, and one thing that I'm, at least I'm hoping, I think it's gonna separate into different groups, right? You have people like Trump, like I suspect Giuliani, who just have no self-control and can't stop lying and can't stop spinning up these tales. And we've already seen with Donald Trump, it has no deterrent value, even when he is found liable in one of these cases. But I hope that in the people, like one concentric circle outside of that, we'll see what happened with Fox. We'll see what will likely happen with Giuliani here. And maybe it will make them think twice before they continue in this sort of fact-free you know, just spinning lies for political gain or for no reason. I mean, there was no reason for Giuliani to tell that lie. Like, why? It just, it just seems like a compulsion. But for others who are trying to do it for gain, maybe it'll give them pause. Do you think that it might be? For Giuliani and Trump? No, no not I for don't. Them, but for so. other people. For other, oh, for other yeah, normal for people, people one it should, especially if there's accountability. And I do, you know, Joyce always says she's the legal nerd, but I'm going to play the legal nerd tonight because, of course, Gil is not a public figure. So the standard of proof for him is much lower. You don't have to prove that it was reckless or 
all you have to prove is that it was false and that it hurt him. And he apparently, he was a, a worker in the grocery store in Staten Island, and he lost his job because of this. That's pretty good damages. And so it seems to me it was untrue. The video proves that. And he was defamed and hurt by it. So I think he wins. Yeah, you know, I'm, um, I'm working on this book on disinformation, which has been, um, you know, it, 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 an incredible experience researching all of this stuff. But, you know, one of the things that makes America particularly susceptible to disinformation is our free speech and our First Amendment. But I think so often people forget that, like all rights, even the First Amendment is not unlimited. There are certain things we can't say, and one of them is defamatory statements. And so I really think it's a great thing when people are using the courts to take back that power that says, you know, you can say a lot of things, you can express a lot of opinions, but you can't lie about people in defamatory ways that damages their reputation. So I uh, give, you know, all props in the world to E. Jean Carroll, to Mr. Gill, who are, um, you know, putting themselves out there at great risk and great expense, uh, but they are protecting the rights of all of us uh, to be able to protect our reputations. And, you know, the, to, for something to, to mean something, the First Amendment, it's not just a freedom, it has a responsibility that we use that right of free speech uh, to talk about things that are worthy of that right. You know, I agree with all of that, and I think it's something even deeper at this particular moment. People who are using the defamation sorts of case law to push back against people who just seem to just malignantly abuse them and their reputations, they're standing up to bullies. And if there's something we've learned in this country, it's that you have to stand up to the bully, especially the political bully, who's using the power that voters give them in a way that harms voters. So I couldn't agree with you more. I think these cases may have significance beyond their individual facts as they move forward. I, I want to point out another legal nerdy thing, which is in terms of the standard of proof, when I was writing my book, I wrote something and everything is reviewed by lawyers to make sure you're not defaming anyone. And in one case, she said to me, uh, is he still alive? And I went, what difference does it make? Everything I'm saying is true. She said, I don't care if it's true. It just would be so much easier if he's dead. <laughs> dead people... <laughs> Dead people do not have any right of defamation. Right. They cannot sue. Their estates cannot sue. And I said, that's not fair. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, that's so wrong that you could lie about somebody even. And they would have no claim. That's just horrible. But anyway, that's what I learned writing a book. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the tip, Jill. Well, write about the dead people. Well, here is to standing up to bullies. And let's hope that we see lots more of that. Another way you can support a lot of charities is to use a product that's also great to use, Thrive Cosmetics. Joyce, have you tried it? Love Thrive Cosmetics. Y'all know that we spend a lot of time putting makeup on and taking it off, right? That's the nature of TV. And I'm not a girly girl. I didn't wear a lot of makeup in my pre-TV life. I love Thrive Cosmetics for a lot of different reasons. For one thing, they make high-performance beauty and skincare products, and they use clean, skin-loving ingredients. No parabens, no sulfates, no phthalates, and their products are certified 100% vegan. They're also cruelty-free, and that really matters to me. 
cause is in their name for a reason. They help with causes that support our communities. So purchase their products, help your community, and it'll be perfect for any look you could want to create with your makeup. You know, we've been flying from the West Coast back to the East Coast, and I am really thankful for Thrive's Brilliant Eye Brightener because I have the dark circles from heck. And, uh, you know, when you want your eyes to pop on camera or you just don't want to scare people when they see you, it really <laughs> works really nicely. It's a highlighter stick made to brighten and open your eyes, giving you an instant eye lift. All you have to do is apply it to the inner corner of your eyes to look like you've had plenty of restful sleep. Even if you haven't, Jill, you're usually the night owl among us, but I've had insomnia, so I probably could text you at 3 a.m. and, and you'd answer <laughs> Please back. Please do. I would <laughs> welcome it. It is true. I never go to bed before at least two. And unfortunately, I don't get to sleep for eight hours. So I am a big fan of Thrive and its highlighter. It really does help. We love this brilliant eye brightener. It's wonderful. I know it's the best, and you can use it as an eyeshadow for a perfect daytime glow, or use the metallic shades for an easy, smoky eye. Its foolproof formula makes it extremely easy to apply and blend, and it comes in 13 shades. You'll see why it has more than 10,000 five-star reviews as soon as you put it on. Thrive has so many more amazing products, so you need to get over to Thrive Cosmetics and check them out. We truly can't get enough of Thrive, especially how they contribute to helping communities thrive with every purchase through their Bigger Than Beauty program. They give to over 300 causes spanning colleges, cancer research, and homelessness, along with many more, and their mascara is unbeatable. You have to try Thrive Cosmetics to see for yourself. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com sisters. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash sisters for 20% off your first order. The link to this deal also looks beautiful in our show notes. So going from ooh, Giuliani, we're going to move on to Mifeprestone and the consequences and the argument that we had this week in the Supreme Court and what else it might foretell. Joyce? Fifth Circuit. Fifth Circuit. The argument fifth. was at the Fifth yeah, the Circuit. Argument. Yes. So for those of you who are getting very deeply troubled by trying to follow the procedural trajectory of all of the abortion cases. I feel like I could really spend all of my time at this point, right, studying the laws and the cases. But we've been focused on mifepristone, one of the medicated abortion drugs. The reason it's so important is that more than 50% of the abortions in this country are now medication abortion. And that's one of the reasons conservatives have sought to attack it as a way of shutting down any access to abortion. Um, like many fine cases that we look at, this one comes out of Texas. <laughs> that means that on appeal, it goes to the Fifth Circuit, which covers uh, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. The main courthouse for the Fifth Circuit is in New Orleans, Louisiana, and that's where the Mifepristone argument was heard this week. For those of you who did not have the time to listen to that full argument, Kim, I know that you did. And will you talk a little bit about the 
panel of judges, the argument, and where you think the case is headed. Yeah, so first I will say, if anybody wants to listen to uh, the argument, there's a way to do that, and um, you can find the link in our show notes. <laughs> <laughs> but I listen so that you don't have to. And without getting too much into, again, the nerdy weeds, and I'm an administrative law nerd, so I can easily We're get We're all pretty nerdy. I yeah, mean, I'm not going to lie. I guess you've kind of figured that out by now. <laughs> but um, I will try to explain it uh, as best as I can. There is a part of the conservative judicial community that really dislikes the executive branch having too much power. You mean the far-right extremists? right out of Barb's mouth, the words right out of Barb's <laughs> mouth. And agencies like the FDA, full of experts that have been keeping people safe and helping people cure diseases and stay healthy for decades and decades, they don't really like it when they do things that they think are wrong and they believe that they, as judges, should have a say in whether or not those things are wrong. And when an attorney goes before one of those courts and says, when one judge in, where in Texas? Well, Amarillo. Amarillo. When one judge basically tried to take Mifepristone off the market all by himself, and an attorney argued that that was unprecedented, whoa, these appellate judges said, well, what do you mean unprecedented? The judicial branch has the right to be a check on the FDA and literally the rest of the part of the argument that was on the merits. We're not even talking about the procedural stuff that came before that. Really was an excoriation of the lawyer for the federal government and the lawyer for Danco, the company that creates the, that makes the drug, for daring to claim that the judiciary might overstep its bounds by trying to substitute itself for the FDA. So that being said, what I took from this is that we will be lucky if mifepristone is still on the market. I think that that is still a possibility, but I think the likelihood that it will be available in the same way that it was before this ruling is very unlikely. And if you don't remember what happened, in 2016, there were various regulation changes by the FDA, which really made this drug more accessible to people. It allowed it up to 10 weeks of the pregnancy instead of seven. It allowed people to be able to take this drug at home. Uh, it took away the requirement of multiple doctor's visits. It basically did things that made it available to most people. And keep in mind, it's not just, it's true that it's the way more than half of abortions are conducted in the country today. In many of those cases, it's, it's for incomplete miscarriages. It's for other uh, severe threats to the mother's health or life. It's life-saving in a lot of ways. And it made it available to people. We already know that the results of it being rolled back to the point where all these restrictions are back in place, will keep it out of the hands of a lot of people, even in states where abortion remains legal. I mean, some of the judges on the Fifth Circuit were just incredulous about the idea that a doctor, they were talking about telemedicine, for example. Sometimes it's prescribed through an appointment via telemedicine. 
and sent, they were calling it mail order abortion. One just said, well, you mean that you can prescribe this like without even seeing the patient's face? I don't understand how you can prescribe this without seeing the patient's face. And I'm just like, what does the patient's face have to do with <laughs> the patient is pregnant or the patient is not? The patient needs the medication or they don't. They, it's just clear that they have no understanding about how it actually works in real time. So it was a depressing argument to listen to, Joyce. Yeah, um, you may not have heard this, but the Fifth Circuit became sharply more conservative during the Trump administration. <laughs> I know that comes as a big surprise. They successfully kept some empty seats open at the end of the Obama administration and filled them and filled vacancies very quickly as, as they came open. Um, I will say that it pains me to talk about judges in those political terms. I spent a lot of time in the appellate division in my U.S. Attorney's Office. My last job before I became the U.S. Attorney was as the appellate chief. And I was used to viewing the judges in my circuit, regardless of which party had appointed them, as judges who were just really interested in deciding legal issues and factual issues with great clarity so that we could all understand the rules and move forward. And it is distressing to have to look at the courts in any other terms. Two of the three panel judges in the Mifepristone argument had really egregiously staked out an anti-abortion position in their work before they went on to the Fifth Circuit. Y you know, let's not be naive. Everybody has views and has worked on certain issues before they become an appellate judge or a Supreme Court justice. I'm not suggesting that people need to, you know, walk straight up the middle of the road with no personal views. But what we really need from our courts is the assurance that they are setting aside those personal views to decide issues. And so when you have a judge in Amarillo, Texas, who plaintiffs have shopped to get, right? They've deliberately yeah. made sure that he is the judge who will hear their case. A judge who had to pull his name off of an article after he was nominated to the bench that was sharply critical of abortion rights. That makes it tough for all of us to have trust and confidence in the courts. And that, I think, is really um, detrimental to the court system and to us. Which takes me, Barb... Well, just before you go, can yeah. I just make a point about that? Because that's so important. As a journalist, when I cover... I've been covering the courts, including the Supreme Court, for decades now. And there was a time that I wouldn't think of saying Republican-nominated judge, re Democratic-nominated justice, because I think that it would imply something that wasn't necessarily true. Now, not only do I say that, I think it's necessary to say that, to give the proper context so that people understand what is happening because that's how drastically things have changed. You do have the forum shopping. You do have judges who have a clear agenda. And you do have judges, even justices, even on our highest court, that are outcome-oriented in a way that I would have never imagined in law school. You know, that's such a painful thing to talk about, and I just want to say there are good judges out there. One of them testified in Congress this week, Judge Wolf from Massachusetts, who went, yeah, Talk about someone who deserves a round of applause. And I was so moved at the end of his testimony when he was facing down Jim Jordan. He said, look, I'm here because like many of my colleagues, I believe in the ideal of impartial justice and I'm here to stand for that. And he made the point that as a judge with senior status, he makes no extra money because he continues to hear cases. He could just go and do nothing and the United States would still pay his pension. He is still sitting on cases because he believes in the rule of law. 
that gives me confidence to be able to believe in it too. So despite all the bad stuff, there's good, but there are procedural issues in the Mifepristone case. My husband clerked in the Fifth Circuit and when he left, the folks in his chambers made him a t-shirt that said, dismissed for want of jurisdiction. <laughs> um, Humor only a lawyer could love. <laughs> you know, bless his heart, we sometimes pretend that we're legal nerds here on the podcast, but Bob truly is. And so the first thing he would do when he looked at any case was he would screen it. And if he could come up with a jurisdiction argument, he would recommend... Um, to his judge that he dismissed. And sometimes that was what the Fifth Circuit did, maybe a little bit more when Bob was around. There is a similar argument in the Mifepristone case. I gotta believe that if this was any other case, you know, not an abortion case, this would have been dismissed for lack of standing. So what's up? Yeah, so standing, as some of you may know, is a legal requirement that says before you can file a lawsuit, you have to be a real party in interest. You have to have some skin in the game because the idea is people will fight best if they have an interest. You know, I, I, I for example, can't file a lawsuit challenging a book ban in Florida. I've tried. I was not successful. <laughs> I would if I could. Um, because I don't have any skin in the game. I don't live in Florida. I have not been directly impacted by that. And so before you can file a lawsuit, you have to have standing. And in this case, it is really stunning to me that the judges at the district court level and now the appellate court level seem to be uh, abiding by this idea that this group of plaintiffs have standing to challenge the FDA's approval of mifepristone. This is a group of doctors that have organized really for the purpose of filing this lawsuit. Um, and their claim of injury is, hear me out on this, it takes a while to get there. These are doctors who oppose abortion. And if a patient, a, a, a woman out there, a person out there, takes mifepristone, it might, might be in that tiny infinitesimal amount of percentage where it doesn't work. And it creates some sort of medical emergency. And then that same patient might have to go to the hospital for an emergency procedure. And it might be that they come in to the hospital where that doctor works. And it might be that that doctor is the one who gets assigned to complete the abortion. And that would violate his rights because of his opposition to abortion. Um, a court would never, ever follow this kind of twisted logic to find standing for any other kind of case. I can remember the post-Patriot Act cases in the early 2000s when, you know, groups of journalists and academics were filing challenges against some of the surveillance laws, saying, it might reveal my sources, I don't know, they might be coming after me, it might reveal my research. And what the courts consistently said was, you don't have standing because your injury is too speculative. It may be that they come after you, but until you have actual evidence that they are, then you don't have standing. And so here, it is shocking to me that so far, they have not dismissed these cases for standing. I do, though, have maybe just a little bit of hope that if this gets to the Supreme Court, they will. Because this Supreme Court, if, you know, th there's a lot of things they like and a lot of things they don't like. But one of the things they don't like is the ability of plaintiffs to bring lawsuits against big corporations. And so if they allow this very expansive idea of standing, they will also be opening the floodgates for litigation for the little guy to go after the big guy. And I don't think they're going to want to do that. So I think that piece of it will be a really interesting thing to watch. You know, as a trial lawyer, I always had a red face test. Could I say it to a judge 
and not blush. I couldn't make this standing argument without thinking it was risible. It's just, it's a ridiculous, hypothetical, totally not likely to happen. And so it's obvious that it should have been dismissed initially on standing. What do you think, Kim? Because if you agree, the sisters-in-law are 4-0 to dismiss for lack of standing. <laughs> well, I think that there is clear lack of standing here. But what I'm less certain about, I want to believe Barb's world that the Supreme Court would say, oh, well, no, we can't cross that line. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think we'd have to wait and see. They have allowed other cases to move forward with plaintiffs that had very questionable standing. So I, I just, I don't know. I hope Barb's right, but I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm sort of there. I'm very concerned because this, this Supreme Court, right, this new 6-3 uber conservative court, really seems to have a willingness to create special rules that only apply in cases that mean that they can knock out more of Americans' rights to access abortion. But this case is an interesting one. It will inevitably go to the Supreme Court no matter how the Fifth Circuit, you know, rules. It'll speed on its way. And there's the big corporation aspect there's the notion that if they rule for the plaintiffs in this case, they will really upset the way the FDA operates when it approves new drugs and the incentives for those big drug companies to investigate and test and go through the expensive process of bringing new drugs to market. And it's a terrible thing to have to say that you think that there might be a chance that the Supreme Court will protect a slender area of abortion rights because otherwise they'd be screwing over big corporate interests. But I have to confess, I, I sort of end up there. Um, Go Big Pharma, I guess, in this case. <laughs> <laughs> I knew we were going to get to go blue at some point. <laughs> so, so Jill Mifepristone's not the only game in town. And this week, another state passed a new anti-abortion law that got signed. What's up in North Carolina? Well, they passed an extremely restrictive bill. And I think where we're headed in general, not just in, in this particular ban, is to personhood, which would eliminate all rights um, in this instance. And it's really awful. It's, we're threatening how the administrative state works because if you look at this data, this drug is safer than Advil. It's safer than Viagra. They would never take that away, but they're doing it for this. So See that's, the Rudy Giuliani oh. complaint, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was drunk and always taking Viagra, it's true. <laughs> um, but really, I think we are in deep trouble because now that, in a way, of course, the Supreme Court said it's up to the states, which is contrary to what Congress is doing, saying, oh, we have to have a federal ban on all abortions, even though the Supreme Court said it's up to the states, and that's what the Republicans were fighting for. But I really do think that there is a trend toward expanding to the most extent that you could. Um, a very dear friend of mine, Sylvia Tamarkin, uh, produced a film called Birthright, A War Story, and she predicted years ago that the anti-abortion coalition was working to define everything as a personhood. And that's what they're leading to. So they have passed laws that kind of get there, like saying, oh, you can take a tax deduction at conception. You don't have to wait till birth. Well, that's because they're saying, it's another way of saying, it's a person, and therefore you cannot have an abortion. 
So I think this is just part of that trend. And many states have passed even more restrictive than this one. This is sort of in between the zero, you know, from conception to six weeks. This is 12. There are some that are 15. Um, I mean, now it's starting to look like, well, 22 is really, uh, which is viability, is really liberal. So that's where I think we're headed. I don't think this is good. Yeah, I mean, I live in Alabama, a state where there is not only a personhood bill, but where my attorney general has said he intends to uh, prosecute women who obtain abortions under a statute that makes it a capital crime. You can now be put to death for getting an abortion. Um, it is a stunning place to be in 2023. And North Carolina used to be like the only place left in the South where a woman could go for a legal abortion, and now it won't be legal there. And we're talking about having to travel huge distances. You know, here you are in New York, I'm from Illinois, we're all safe, but people who live in the South are not. So put this date on your calendars. Next month, June 24th, it's the one-year anniversary of the day that the Supreme Court reversed Roe versus Wade. It's Dobbs Day, not a very happy anniversary in American history, but an important one. I think that there will be a lot of activism around that day. It's a mixed bag, right? There's bad news and there's good news. I'm just curious what you all see as we approach that anniversary. How do you assess where we are and what happens next, Barb? Yeah, well, I, I think that um, the voters are speaking. And, you know, in my home state of Michigan, one of the things that really uh, was a galvanizing issue in our last November election was uh, reproductive rights. On the ballot was a ballot initiative to amend the Michigan Constitution to make the right to an abortion a constitutional right. And not only did that pass in overwhelming fashion, but it had very long coattails because for the first time in 40 years, Michigan now has a Democratic majority in the House, the Senate, and all the executive branch positions. So I, I think there's an opportunity to take this issue, and it's a shame it comes to this because there are real people who are really suffering for this, but perhaps there is a way to turn this into a positive and get some good results out of it in the end. For those who are listening and can't see, Barb is wearing her amazing blue today. She is very pro-Michigan. Thank you. The blue. You know, if, you, uh, if you're on the faculty at Michigan, you have to wear one of these. You know, you have to get the maize and blue attire. I like to think of this as, uh, you know, the jacket I got when I was inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. <laughs> I have these. Um, but uh, my husband said it really actually looks more like something Howard Cosell wore to host Monday Night Football. <laughs> Roll Tide, baby. <laughs> hey, Jill, what do you see coming? Well, I, I'm thinking that we need to look at what will protect rights. And my state today passed a, in the General Assembly, a resolution that asks that President Biden order the enforcement of Amendment 28, which is the Equal Rights Amendment. And I'm, I am a big proponent. I've been campaigning for the Equal Rights Amendment since 1976 at the Democratic Convention that was here in New York. And it is something that is essential because we are not, all of, I, I can't see the audience, but the half of you that are female and all of us are not protected in our constitution. It isn't there and we need to have it happen. And there's no reason that we shouldn't get 
an equal treatment in our Constitution. So thank you, Illinois, for doing that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I echo everything that has already been said, and I think we need to continue to bring light to and, and, and celebrate lawmakers who do have courage, who want to protect access to health care and want to keep people safe. Um, and right now, it's just it's things like in Massachusetts, they found a way to basically stockpile mifepristone just to get over this period of time. If the FDA rules are suddenly changed, it would create a logistical nightmare. It will just be hard to get it, even in places like Massachusetts, probably the state with the best abortion protections in the country. Um, th there are people doing everything they can, doctors trying to ensure that they provide care as, as much as they can. I, I think you need to celebrate the heroes. They're not always the people on television talking. There are the people on the ground doing the hard work uh, and lift them up and support them because and, and, it's going to be a long fight ahead. Yeah, I think that's right. A friend of mine who's um, a doctor who delivers babies and has delivered babies for a very lengthy career told me how distressed he was that abortion techniques weren't going to be taught at university at the, at the medical school and that these drugs would be less accessible. He viewed it not as abortion per se, but as life-saving treatment for his patients who needed them. And I said, well, why don't you speak out? And he said, I can't, I would be ostracized by my evangelical community and my family would pay the price for that. And I think what's happening is we're seeing a culture war being fought on this turf where abortion is being turned into something that it really isn't. It's, you know, it's just that knee-jerk line. You've got to be against abortion to be a legitimate conservative. And instead of having a realistic conversation about balancing and protecting rights and compromise, it's just culture war. It is so emblematic of so much in our society that we need to improve and transform. I suspect that that's a long-term process if we get there. But, you know, I think about that vote in Kansas, the first state that had to look at the abortion issue after Dobbs. Kansas is not a blue state. Kansas is not a purple state, right, like Michigan has been. Kansas is a deep red state. Um, if American voters who have a historically uh, short attention span can remain activated on this issue, then it may do something positive, which for me is not, you know, I, I'm not partisan enough to say I care exclusively about democratic victories. What I care about is electing people who will protect our rights, not just the rights of the people who protect them, but everyone's rights. And so if there's a silver lining from American women being subjected to the risk of dying because they cannot obtain the life-saving you know, drugs that my doctor friend talked about, then maybe it's this notion of political change that better protects women. It's a, it's a tough outlook. Kim, I know you do not have a whole lot of time for house cleaning in your life. Have you discovered any products that you do like using? You know, I have. Not only has it uh, cured my lack of time for house cleaning, but it also helps me in my uh, compulsive hand washing 
that I still do, even after the pandemics, keep washing your hands, y'all, but you know, that uh, you can still stay clean and stay environmentally friendly. You know, an estimated five billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away each year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy to ship leading to excessive carbon emissions. Plus, those products are often filled with nasty ingredients like chlorine and ammonia. That's a lose-lose situation for you and the planet. Like us, we're sure that means you know it's time to make a difference, and that difference can be found with Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet. Their idea is simple. They offer endlessly refillable cleaning products with a beautiful, cohesive design that looks great on your counter. You know, I was skeptical the first time we used these. I'll admit, I mean, I, I just thought maybe it won't work. The best thing was, though, it was so easy to set it up. You know, it comes in a kit. It's like, you need to take the tablets and put them in your bottles. You drop them in, you put in the water, you wait for it to dissolve. And it really is great. You feel so much better when you're using it. None of those horrible, nasty odors where you feel like your eyes are going to drop out of the socket. Great stuff. You can buy it in bulk. You can set up automatic shipping. Blue Land makes it really easy for you to use. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets. It's in my contract. I don't have to say that. <laughs> All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients you can feel good about. Try their Clean Essentials Kit, that's the one that I got, which has everything you need to get started. It's got three bottles of cleaner, a bottle of hand soap, and they're nice glass bottles. They feel great. They come in beautiful light scents like iris agave, fresh lemon, and eucalyptus mint. I like all of them. I haven't hit one I don't like yet. Blue Land has an offer just for our listeners. Get 15% off your first purchase of any product. To get 15% off your first order, go to blueland.com slash sisters. You won't want to miss this. blueland.com slash sisters. That's blueland.com slash sisters. Or you can find the link in our show notes. Barb is going to take us through this last topic, which I'm fascinated by. So go ahead, Barb. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about problems tonight. And I'd really want to talk a little bit about solutions and advice for dealing with some of these problems. You know, we've talked about harassment. Um, all of us, I think, have dealt with, we've talked about bullying, dealt with conflict. And I would love to just hear your advice uh, that we can share with each other and with our audience and with our listeners for how you might deal with being the target of those kinds of things. How do you deal with harassment or uh, bullying or you know, any kind of conflict. I'd love to hear your advice. And Jill, I'd love to start with you in light of your history as the Watergate girl, where you endured uh, some of that kind of you know, blatant sexism. And then also as your work as general counsel in the army, where you no doubt saw incidents of this. What advice do you have for people about dealing with these issues? So my advice and I mean, I could spend hours talking about my experience. Well, we only have five minutes till we go to questions, so, okay, so. I'll make it out. <laughs> I want hours. I want hours. We'll have to do this uh, multiple times, I think. Um, my advice is that you need to think about what are you trying to accomplish. 
and then adopt your solution to that. Whatever strategy you use, it may be humor, it may be direct confrontation. It depends on who you're dealing with. I've had so many episodes of sexism. I have, knock on wood, only had one episode of what I would call sexual assault. I've had tons of harassment, um, starting with, in law school, my male colleagues, there were only 5% of the class that was allowed to be female, and the men would say, someone is going to die in Vietnam because you took their place in the class, and you'll never practice law anyway. And then I'd be interviewed for jobs, and they'd say, what kind of birth control are you using? And how many children are you going to have? And those were, at the time, legal questions that I had to answer to get a job. And so I'm glad we're sort of past that time, but in dealing with it, Sometimes I would, you know, make a joke of it, but sometimes you have to say out loud, this is wrong, you can't say that to me, that's wrong. And you just have to know. Now, when I was assaulted, it was witnessed by a number of people, and the, one of them reported it to the HR department, who called me and said, you want to file a complaint? I was not as brave as E. Jean Carroll. I did not. I loved my job, and I wasn't willing to risk it. But I also knew that I could avoid future contact with that person and would never again be alone with him in a way that threatened me. So I was able to find an alternative solution to bringing it. I did a TV show uh, in which I played a lawyer who was representing women who in the early Wait a minute, days... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, Jill has had every job. You, you, you were in a TV show? What, what was Howard, the show? Yes, Ron Howard produced something on TV. Were you on Happy you Days? Have not told what? Us this. <laughs> yeah. I was even in TV Guide. My picture was in TV wow. Guide. Oh my God. It's true. You'll find that picture in our show notes. <laughs> I actually still have it. I do. I have a copy of this. Anyway, um, I, so a lot of women called me to ask advice. Now, I was at Jenner and Block and no one could afford our fees who was in this situation. But I, as pro bono, sort of listened and in almost every case had to advise them, you have to evaluate your job versus doing the right thing, preventing someone else from doing it. And if we don't hold these culprits guilty, if we don't hold them accountable, they will assault someone else. They will harass someone else. So it is important. But my experience was longer ago than most of you will remember. So I didn't do it, and there was no support system for me. We now have a support system. The Me Too movement has provided that. I'm a big proponent of it, and I think that now maybe my solutions would be different. My advice to those women was try and get out of the situation. Don't put yourself in a place where it's going to happen again, but if you sue, you will end up losing. And I'm sorry that was that way. It isn't true anymore, so I wouldn't be giving that advice anymore. Yeah, I think it's so important to hear those stories, though, to understand the history, to realize how far we've come and how far we have yet to go. But I think it, it gives me hope to know how far we've come in my lifetime. Um, and, you know, we have to constantly be pushing forward to, to make more progress. I mean, yeah. we should be able to look back 50 years and say, I can't believe how awful it was. It makes me cringe because that means it's that much better today. So yeah. Absolutely. And I saw it in the military. I was on a committee looking at sexual assault in the military. And I saw how rampant it is. And in the circumstances of the military, they have created a really 
dynamic system to protect women who are assaulted. They have sexual assault counselors, they have people who are specially assigned lawyers for those women, and that's what we may need in the civil system as well as the military system to protect women who are assaulted so that they can go forward. So it's a good thing. Yeah, and of course, it's not just women who get sexually assaulted. I mean, every, it's, Absolutely. it's something that happens to In the everybody. military, it's mostly men because mm -hmm. the statistics, I mean, in terms of the, mm -hmm. percentage-wise, more women will be assaulted than men, but not numerically because there are so many more men in the military. Yeah, Kim, now how about you? I know we've talked before um, about, you know, some of the harassment that uh, journalists get, that female journalists get, that female journalists of color get. Um, what advice do you have for people dealing with some of these kinds of issues? Yeah, it's like exponentially worse, like when yeah. you have all the, when you tick all of those boxes. Yeah, you know, I think, and it sort of talks about, um, it's it sort of, what I've learned sort of hits at what Jill was talking about is, is Think about what you can do. Think about what you can accomplish. I used to think that the harassment, hate, sexism um, that I would get often online, but sometimes to my face, uh, sometimes in the, the handwritten notes are the most interesting one, you know, with like a return address on it, just, you know, okay. saying uh, uh, horrific things. I would throw them away. I would delete the email. I muted my mentions on social media just so that I wouldn't see it because my thought is, look, I don't want this in my head. I don't want this in my headspace. I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. And then I realized that that wasn't enough. I had to do something else. And so the first thing I started doing was talking about it with my colleagues, including particularly other women of color, other people, LGBTQ uh, reporters and others. And I said, hey, because it increased sharply over the last year or two. It's like, have you been getting an increase in just like really abject harassment, hate, vitriol? And they all said, yes. And the time frame was just about the same. And it's, again, that strength in numbers. And so we talked to our employer about it. Employer didn't realize this. They start implementing policies about how social media works on their platforms. They started um, doing training to sort of teach other journalists about what resources they provided for them and what else they should do when we should get law enforcement involved. Just give them the tools that I didn't even know was available when it was happening to me. And also it's a way, again, to hold people accountable when these things become heinous. You can't just ignore it. It has to be addressed and you can't address it alone. I'm lucky enough that I have an employer that believes deeply in protecting its journalists and took this very seriously and acted quickly. But that was a lesson. Ignoring it at, at first felt like the right thing to do. The most important thing to do was to protect myself, my headspace, my, my mental health, and not just bringing that in. But then I realized that there was something else that I needed to do. Another thing that I do to sort of make it, um, I think that's important, I try to live my best life. I try to show people who are engaging in this type of behavior to try to silence me, to try to intimidate me, to try to do whatever it is they're trying to do, that I have a happy, fulfilled, wonderful life. I love my job. I'm still, you know, writing my opinion. I get paid to write my opinions. How fabulous is that? <laughs> and I continue to write about all the things that we're talking about, and I continue to tell the truth 
freely uh, to use the words of Ida B. Wells. So I think confronting it, being as strong as you can, especially when you have a platform to do it, it's so important to use that platform um, to display that strength and to continue to tell truth to power. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> Joyce, I was going to ask you to answer the same question, but before we do, I have to say, I'm a little mesmerized by the knitting going on right here. <laughs> what was the, uh, the Jordan Peele stuff. movie? Was it, was it Get Out? Get Out. Where, like, the teacup made them, <laughs> I, like, I keep having that sensation where I'm sort of mesmerized. The knitters in the, the audience will attest, there's something about doing handwork, about knitting, that lets you focus in this just really laser beam way on what's being said. I find that I process information more quickly and completely when I'm knitting. And it must be true because even my husband, who was a state court judge until January, permitted his jurors to knit in the jury box, which made him super popular. All right, fair enough. It's um, having the opposite effect on me because I'm just mesmerized. I can't think about anything else. Did um, you knit during your closing arguments? Like, what did you do? Me? Yes. I always would knit when I had a jury deliberating. For me, that was the most painful part of trying cases. Yeah. I was always nervous as a cat when they were out. And so that was one of the first times professionally. As a young lawyer in Washington, D.C. at a big firm, I actually started knitting um, when juries were out. Wow. Nervous as a cat. I love it when she talks Southern. <laughs> <laughs> but Joyce, I do want to ask you this question about your thoughts about what we're talking about, harassment, bullying, advice, uh, conflict resolution. What, what advice might you have or thoughts might you have? I have to confess to being really conflicted on this subject. I listen to what you all are saying. I would love to believe that we have made progress in this country. I fear, though, that we are sliding backwards. And Kim, to your point about the last couple of years being bad, you know, we all know that a force has been unleashed in this country that has made it possible for fringe, marginalized sorts of views and people to come back into the mainstream. So I think we have to be careful. I wish I had the wisdom of a Jill Weinbanks, um, but I have to confess I don't have that wisdom. What I have is great good luck. And even as a young lawyer, I moved from um, Washington, D.C. to Birmingham pretty early in my career. And I remember a moment early in time where we were in federal court litigating. I think it may have been the first time I encountered a somewhat well-known lawyer in, in the Alabama legal community who said to my senior partner words to the effect of, oh, I see that you've added a fancy new filly to your stable. Um, <laughs> He said it so casually as we were walking from the judge's chambers into his anteroom to work on something. And um, my partner looked at me and said, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go and hit him? <laughs> it was just his very honest, um, off-the-cuff opinion. And I said, no, Warren, that's silly. That's not necessary. But his reaction filled me with security, yeah. and I knew that the people around me would not tolerate that kind of thing. Um, when I moved to the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, for a long time when I wanted to have lunch with the other women in the criminal division in my office, I just sat at my desk and ate alone because I was the only woman in the criminal division for a period of years. 
And I was surrounded by warm, supportive colleagues who loved me because I was the legal nerd, right? I was the goofy person who would volunteer to take on some of their um, heavy lifting on motions practice and do the research and, and write their briefs. And one of the ways that they paid me back was by insulating me, I think, from things that I saw and observed but never had to take seriously because of their support. And so I would just say, if you have that opportunity in these very difficult times to be the support system for someone, whether it's a woman who's being harassed or somebody in the LGBTQ community or anyone else, you know, I see this um, in our legal community with some of the Muslim lawyers who really experience an extraordinary degree of harassment um, from people who, for instance, don't like the fact that Sikh lawyers wear their turbans into the courtroom. Be, be that person who yeah. ensures that someone else doesn't have to deal with it alone. That's the most powerful thing any of us can do. Yeah. Well, your, your talk about allies um, is, is really important, and it makes me think of you know, sort of the bullying that maybe I've been sub subject to, a little bit different from sexual harassment, maybe. Roll but Tide. I, I <laughs> there she goes again, bullying me. Um, now, I think if you're a lawyer, you've probably been bullied. I don't know. I was. And I don't know if it was because I was female or because I was young or because I'm smallish, um, new to the office, you know, all of those things. But I can remember over my career being bullied and, and kind of working through an evolution of how I dealt with it. You know, at first it was sort of nervous laughter and ignoring it and hoping it would go away. You know, not terribly successful. Uh, I can remember a time when I, I just walked out of the room and said, I'm not going to sit here and take this. And I didn't feel great about that. And then I, I moved to humor, which, you know, can be good, can be bad. There was a time when uh, I was trying a case while very visibly pregnant. And the defense attorney asked for a um, meeting in chambers with the judge and me and said, what are we going to do about that? And he said, what do you mean? Look at her. She's pregnant. That's going to garner sympathy from the jury. Uh, I think that's prosecutorial misconduct. <laughs> and the, the judge was an older man, but he looked sort of uh, a little stunned and a little amused by this whole thing. And he looked at me and said, counsel, what, what do you say to that? And so I, uh, I'm not proud of myself. I don't usually body shame, but the, the defense attorney was a larger man. And so I just said, um, if, uh, if he doesn't talk about my weight, I promise not to talk about his. <laughs> but, but even that is, is uh, you know, you, you, the, the real zinger is the one you come up with as you're driving home in the car. You know, like, yes. oh, what I should have said. Here's what I should have said. Um, I think the best way to deal with conflict it really is candor, which some of you all talked about, really just go directly saying this is not acceptable. And I'll tell you who I learned a really beautiful way to resolve conflict um, is our former colleague, Preet Bharara, who I think may I be think here tonight. Here. Yeah. Preet in the house. Preet's in the house. Um, you know, whenever I talk to Preet, I say to him, Preet, stay tuned. But... Um, this was a con... We had a conflict that... It's a little slow. We probably shouldn't drop names of other podcasts on this one, should we? Yeah, but it's a good one. I mean, we like Preet. It's a, it's a great podcast. say it in public, but we do. Um, no, he and I had a conflict when we were U.S. attorneys. You know, from time to time, uh, different offices may be competing for the opportunity to prosecute a certain case. You know, for example, 
you know, my district might have had a case where we had all the witnesses, all the evidence, the crime occurred, and in Preet's district, they were the Southern District of New York. <laughs> <laughs> that seemed to be enough for them. Um, but I, I, I can remember when we knew we had this conflict, and he called me, and we we're going to talk about it, and I've used this technique, and I think it was such a beautiful way to deal with it. What he said was, we were friends before this conflict arose, we'll be friends after this conflict is resolved, but we have a conflict and we should discuss it. And we did, and we talked about it uh, candidly. We shared with each other, you know, what we thought were the pros and the cons, and we dealt with it, you know, like professional colleagues, the way I think uh, American taxpayers would want their public servants talking about it. And then did he say, I'm the Southern District of New York, so I'm keeping the case? <laughs> he did get the case. Yeah. <laughs> But I got the next two. <laughs> um, no, I just think it was a, a very good lesson in uh, a good way to resolve disputes. And I think candor, sometimes, you know, ignoring it doesn't work so well. Storming out of the room doesn't work so well. Even humor in doesn't work so well. But really just candor, you know, speaking what you believe, what is in your heart, what you think. I think it takes courage, but is, I think, really the best way to get to a solution. I just want to raise a slightly different type of issue, which is when it's the judge, because you can't fight back with the judge because he's the judge. Um, I mean, during Watergate, there were a couple of famous incidents where Judge Sirica said to me when I was cross-examining Rosemary Woods, now ladies, we have enough trouble in the courtroom without two women fighting. I was cross-examining a witness. This was not a cat fight. And when I was cross-examining one of the defendants who was I have to say, in this case, my gender played a role in my assignment to question him. He was known as a hothead and an evil, terrible person. And we thought if he would yell at me, if I could provoke him to yell, it would really hurt him in front of the jury. Whereas if he yelled at Rick or Jim, who were my two male colleagues, it would have no impact because a man yelling at a man, so what? But then we thought, well, he won't yell at me no matter what I do because he'll control himself. But then we decided, well... It's worth a try. If he yells, good. If he doesn't, we haven't lost anything. I got him yelling right away. <laughs> the jury hated him. And Judge Sirica interrupted saying, Mr. Mardian, don't you know you can never win an argument with a lady? And, and then his lawyer said, recess, Your Honor, recess. And every defense lawyer in the courtroom ran up to him and said, you have to control yourself. You're killing yourself. The jury hates you. And so when we came back from the recess... He was controlled. Judge Zerika had ruined my cross-examination. I had made enough of a point that he got convicted. Uh, there was plenty of evidence to convict him anyway, but it, it, his lawyer thought that that was really the reason he got convicted. But you can't yell back at the, the judge. You just can't. I had another judge who, when I went into chambers, would stand up because he was an old-fashioned gentleman and he thought that's what you do when a lady enters your room. So you have to just... How did that work? You're standing for the judge and he's standing for you and <laughs> no one could ever sit. That's pretty... And it was in Detroit. Judge oh, Keith. David Keith. All right. Oh, wow. Well, you know, I, I thought about something when Barb was saying she didn't know if she was being bullied because of a lot of... She was young or she was small in stature. The, what made me start wearing high heels was practicing <laughs> law. It was being a litigator, going into court and walking into the courtroom and walking into the courthouse and being directed to the criminal division or being asked if I was represented by counsel or having a judge... <laughs> 
overhearing a judge ask my co-counsel, who is that? <laughs> it's like his co-counsel, she's a, it's like she's a, you know, he didn't say she's a lawyer, but that was basically the implication. So I thought, if I make myself, I mean, I was, I was 25 years old when I started practicing law. I was practicing in Boston in a place where you barely saw women litigators, let alone black women litigators. People didn't even know what to do with me. I thought, maybe if I make myself bigger and I started wearing high heels. It didn't work at all. It, did, it totally... <laughs> you know, that's what animals do to look more ferocious. Yeah, it totally... It did not work one bit, except that it made me realize I love high heels and I've been wearing them <laughs> ever since as a fashion statement. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I think for when I was dealing with judges who weren't taking me as seriously or disparaging me. The one thing you fight it with is you do the work. I became a better yeah. litigator. I would come to court. Of course, I was a young lawyer. My you know, boss wouldn't give me the most winning arguments to take on my first motions, and so that was tough. But after a while, he taught me to help, help make me think on my feet, not think in the law books like I did in law school. And I remember once I was going to the courthouse and I thought of an argument to make on a motion on the route there. It was not in the pleadings. I'm like, what do I have to lose? Except this motion. I, I might as well make this argument. And I went in and I made this argument and the judge looked at me and then turned to my co-counsel and said, well, counsel, what do you have to say about that? And counsel was like, Bleh. you know, I, this was not, this was not in the pleading. He's like, well, think about it. I want to answer for you. I'm going to, you know, table this. I'm like, what? I didn't lose this motion? Like right here in real time it was the first motion that I went on to win. So, you, you show your work, you show your ability. It's not fair that we have to work harder to get these things, but I think that is how the judges learn to treat women differently. Kim, you've been talking about your insomnia. What do you use to try to quiet your mind when you're trying to sleep? You know, I have gone back, I had stopped doing this and it shows, uh, to listening to bedtime stories. And they come from an app called Calm, which is actually a, a mindfulness and meditation app. And their bedtime stories are actually really great. It helps me to sort of refocus, slow my mind down, and get to sleep. And I'm going to definitely use it tonight just to get back on track to better sleep habits. You know, if you're looking to reduce stress, increase your mindfulness, and improve your overall well-being, you need Calm. Calm helps you stress less, sleep more, and live a happier, healthier life. Calm recognizes that everyone faces unique challenges in their daily lives, that mental health needs differ from person to person, and that time for meditation may vary. And like, if you're like us, it's very, very little. And since self-practices are so deeply personal, Calm strives to provide content that caters to everyone's preferences and needs. Their meditations range from focus on anxiety to stress, self-care to inner peace. They have sleep stories, relaxing music tracks, and daily movement sessions, all designed to give you the tools to improve the way you feel. I actually like those. I can't sit still. When I try to meditate and focus on my breathing, it, it starts to freak me out. Like, is that, am I breathing? Is that enough? Am I breathing too slowly? Am I dying? So I like the move meditations where you're looking at nature and uh, being very present in the moment. Um, all of them are designed to improve the way you feel. They even have expert-led talks on topics such as tips for overcoming stress and anxiety, handling grief, improving self-esteem, caring for relationships, and more. Everything you need to prioritize your mental health and wellness is on Calm. 
If you go to calm.com slash sisters, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription. There's new content every week. So relax, Calm's got everything that you need for a happier and a healthier you. Like Kim, I love the bedtime stories. It sounds a little bit kitschy. My husband was skeptical. They are really great, you'll love them. I was very skeptical. I couldn't believe that it would work, but it really, really does. It helps um, even with the stress or anxiety of doing a live show in front of people who you really <laughs> want to impress. It can help you calm down a lot. And for listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash sisters. Go to calm.com slash sisters for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com slash sisters. And I bet you all know where you can find that link. You can find it in our show, show notes. notes. How about it? Where can you find it? Thank you. Well, I know New York is the city that never sleeps, but I do. And so we need to move on to our questions. So remember Barbara's rule. Remember Barbara's rule. These are questions, not comments. The lights have come on. Microphone right there and a microphone there. Two cues. And there's another rule. Okay, I'm going to surprise you because you're the first one. We also want to hear your recommendations for either the best bagel in New York or the best deli. So Yeah, where are we eating tomorrow? We have a lot of eating to do. Where are we eating tomorrow? We did this in Portland, Oregon last week. Got great suggestions. Barb and I ended up at a deli called Mother's and had a good meal. So we're going to see, can New Yorkers do as well as the yeah. people in Crowdsourcing our I meals. I need the best bagel in my life, y'all. We're, what are we doing? <laughs> Give us your name and where you're from and your favorite recommendation, and then ask your question. Hi, I'm Judy Castle from Cannabis Law, and I'm from Pennsylvania, so I don't have a recommendation where you can go tomorrow. If you come to Pennsylvania, I have several. Um, my question, my backdrop of my question, is a recent Supreme Court case that um, they briefed, I think, last week, and it was Moore versus Harper, I think. Oh, God. With the red legislatures trying to take over the state and how things are gerrymandered, etc., my question has to do with a statement that Joyce made last week, which up, was very uplifting, and I might get this wrong, so please correct me. You said that if we could increase voting in the 18 to 25 yes. age group by 10%, we could flip Alabama? Yeah, I mean, I think statistically, that's what we see in elections, is that young voters don't turn out in numbers that represent their interests in these elections. And so the case that you reference is, of course, the independent state legislature theory, which would have a dramatic impact on elections. Part of the game of voter suppression is to convince you that you've already lost, that you shouldn't bother to go out and vote, that between voter suppression and gerrymandering, you know, forget it, it it's done. One of the ways we fight back against that is by thinking about how do we outvote the suppression? 
And a big one is animating young voters to come out in greater numbers. We've always known in Alabama that we could do better if we had younger voters turn out. That's just a reality of our political landscape. And I think that's one way, I was just on, uh, I was talking about this on Nicole Wallace's show uh, with Mark Elias about voting rights. And that that's one way I think Democrats fail is that they still think about and sort of campaign as if the swing voter were these, you know, middle, you know, moderate folks that they can swing one way or another. No, that, that, that's statistically insignificant at this point. It is young people who are deciding whether to vote Democratic or whether not to vote at all. And again, it's not that I'm, I'm not a registered anything, but I, it's whether to vote for the party that's going to protect people's rights or not vote at all. And those are the people that Democrats need to be motivating, to need to be mobilizing in order to get out. And that will, that's really the only way to change what is Although happening. Although it also is true that once a young person votes on one party side, they are likely to be a lifetime in that party. So that's an important element. And I, I host, co-host another podcast called iGen Politics with a 20-year-old college student who is very You have involved. another podcast? <laughs> oh, gosh. You've all been guests on that podcast. It's an interview platform. It's totally different than this. It's just us interviewing people. And he's very active in the youth vote and it is really important. So make sure you get anybody you know who's under 35 to vote immediately. It's really important. At our next show, I'm going to ask people to guess how many jobs Jill has or has <laughs> had. And the person who is closest will get a door prize. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry. I got the mic loose. Did you turn it off? I hope not. No, we can okay, hear go you. Ahead. Um, thank you for being here. I'm Kaylee. Uh, I'm from New York. Um, and the question I have... Bagel, bagel or oh, deli? Oh, you know, I'm not actually good at this, but I did have a good brunch once at Sunny Boy in the Lower East Side. Okay. So, if that's relevant. Um, <laughs> but the question I have pertains to the horrific uh, anti-trans bills that are being passed and the uh, discrimination that they permit with respect to the provision of health care and gender-affirming care. And I'm wondering if there is an equal protection claim to be brought, since it seems to directly target a historically marginalized community. Who wants to take it? Oh, I mean, you would think. I, I think... I think the trouble that you have at this point is bringing these constitutional-based claims, especially as the Supreme Court shifts more to requiring that such claims establish some sort of long history or established uh, history of protecting that in, the, in a way that basically disenfranchises everybody. I think the better way to go at it would be statutorily. Now, that requires lawmakers to actually stand up. Yeah. But the, the reason that I say that is the one of the wins at the Supreme Court that protected LGBTQ people most was the one in the Bostock case because it found that Title VII protections against sexual uh, discrimination also applies to LGBTQ people. You had that statute there to hang that on. Increasingly, the Supreme Court is looking very askew uh, at provisions in constitutional claims 
of protection if you cannot prove that that was the original intent, that that was a long history behind that, and that is the reason they should rule against that. So I think it's tough. I mean, I know you guys give me better news. No, I mean, I think that you're right. And one of the problems when you think about this sort of constitutional litigation where you're trying to figure out who gets strict scrutiny when their rights are violated, you know, are they explicitly provided for in a statute so that the court will provide this higher level um, of protection is the litigation risk. It's, it's the nerdy appellate lawyer in me. You worry about what this Supreme Court might do to erode protections instead of to increase them. Right. I will tell you that as a, as a U.S. attorney, I hated it when the Solicitor General used to make those sorts of arguments when we wanted to challenge whatever the Alabama legislature's horrible law of the month was, right? I spent a lot of my time as a U.S. attorney challenging whatever the Alabama legislature was in the process of doing. And I hated it when they would say to me things like, well, you can't challenge the immigration law because Plyler versus Doe, the Supreme Court case that guarantees children, you know, K to 12, a free public education regardless of their citizenship status. You might impair that case law if you bring this challenge. And I hated that because I wanted to say we need to protect people's rights. If we're going to lose Plyler versus Doe, we're, we're going to lose it. Let's find out now. I am so concerned, though, about the fate of these sorts of equal protection challenges that I think we need to counsel great caution. We need to pick the right cases to move forward in um, and be very selective about when and where those cases are brought. But I would be um, remiss if I didn't say what's being done to the trans community breaks my heart. On Wednesday, Alabama will take up a, a new terrible law. You and I were discussing earlier, is it Nebraska that adopted a law today? Yes. I mean, there is a real campaign against our trans brothers and sisters, and it's heartbreaking. And, and you have to remember that in Dobbs, the court really hinted at a loss of other rights, a loss of equality for LGBTQ for sure, for gay marriage for sure. These were things that could happen. So Joyce is right. If and we, Congress acted, because yeah. that, statutorily, that's how you protect oh, yeah, it right, right now. That's really the only way. Um, Congress acted to protect some of them, but you know, I'm still married to my husband in all states because right. loving still exists. Right. But um, yeah, it, it's really hard to make it on a pure constitutional claim. And, and what Joyce said, the, the, the peril of losing is great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Joni. I'm from Pennsylvania, also. And so, question, no breakfast recommendation no, from you either. No, I'm sorry. I'm looking too. Um, <laughs> but my daughter's from Brooklyn, so oh, she'll guide sorry. us. But this is. Do a you question. have a recommendation? If you get to Park Slope, then yeah. <laughs> um, this is a question for all of you, or some of you. But if you had the opportunity to get together for coffee or a drink with a Supreme Court justice. Who would you pick, why, and what questions would you ask them? Ooh, wow. You know, in the, in well, the interest I, of time and getting through all our people, I think one person should answer this question. But I it's think a great all of question. us would say there are three that we would choose, <laughs> yeah. right? I, but maybe not. I, I would say one of the three. Is there someone who would say they would take on one of the six? Oh, yeah. I would want to have breakfast with Clarence Thomas and ask oh. him what the... <laughs> The answer. No, no, what the, would you the ask right him? Answer is, what would you ask the him? Answer. The right answer is I want to have breakfast with Harlan Crow on the super yacht. 
Thank you. Okay, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Go ahead. Hi, um, my name's Leah. Um, I unfortunately don't have a good answer for you. I, oh, I am I'm going to be so hungry tomorrow. I know, I know. So I'm gluten-free, so I have to go oh, to this gotta one. Got to have extra gluten. Yeah, I need no, extra gluten no. in the morning. So you need something really gluten-full tomorrow. Um, but I, my question comes from not only me, but also my sister, who is also here, and my mom and her sister, who flew Ooh. out from Ohio, wow. where we are all originally Yay. from. Um, so lots of sisters here. Um, but our question is about the really horrific killing of Jordan Neely on the subway. Um, I think, at least for me, it was really shocking and horrible how long it took for the assailant to be arrested. But I also... I'm really curious what you guys think will happen with the prosecution, what direction the defense will go and the prosecution, just also given a lot of the social media that surrounds the case and how high profile it's become. I'll, I'll take a quick stab at this one. You know, wh when I read this case, and this may um, have, you may have had a similar reaction to this, the, the first thing I thought of was the Bernard Getz case, yep. mm -hmm. right? I mean, it, it, it feels so much like that case. And Bernard Getz was ultimately acquitted. Now, that was in the 1980s. I'd like to think that the world has changed today. Um, but, you know, his story was, I immediately assumed these uh, black teens were going to, you know, hurt me or kill me. Uh, because of all of his impl implicit biases and fears. And so um, I think one of the real challenges of a case like this is it really shows uh, the dangers of this idea of a citizen's arrest. Uh, it's what happened with uh, Ahmad Arbery's death. You know, the men there said they were making a citizen's arrest. Kyle Rittenhouse, yes, you know, with his Kyle vigilante violence on the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin. You know, um, you know, people feel like I'm going to be the superhero here and take charge and protect everybody from these, uh, you know, second-class citizens. I think that's what's going, you know, going on in society today. All of this divisiveness in society today. And so, you know, the system failed, Mr. Neely. Uh, you know, somebody who needed help and didn't get it. And he ends up dead because he happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So I'd like to think that in the 40 years since the Bernard Getz case, that maybe we look at these cases a little bit differently, but I'm very much watching it through that lens. And, and one thing that I'm really horrible, uh, horrified by is how the assailant in this case is being turned into a hero, the same way Kyle Rittenhouse is. Um, and that says something about our society. I mean, in Kyle Rittenhouse's case, he also was able to walk free and become um, more of that type of hero. That's really horrifying that that's happening. Um, we have a jury system, and so that worries me too, that these are people who are on the jury, but I try to hold out hope that justice will prevail, but it's difficult. So okay, I look, see, I, Joyce, think I see a really long line of questioners, so let's yeah. Let me just say one quick thing. The that quitters. I, I think it's important to say that in this country, people are innocent until they are proven guilty. Yes. Murder involves an intent to kill. Manslaughter involves recklessness or gross negligence. This case is ultimately up to a jury. I have the same concern that Kim has, this hero worship of people who yeah, have yeah. committed these events. Thank you for the Thank question. You. Go ahead, next. Hi, I'm Victoria from Queens, and I recommend the New York City Bagel and Coffee House. There are right. several of them in Astoria. Um, why, are, why are presidents considered innocent until they're out of office? I don't understand what it's <laughs> going to take. It, what's it going to take to get that provision out of the Constitution that says you can't 
go after a city. Oh, that's right, it's not in the Constitution. Right. But some guy in the 1970s wrote a memo, and I know much of my life has been ruined at various points by some guy who wrote a memo in the 70s. But what's it going to take? What's it going to take to put a president on the same level as everybody else when it comes to crimes? Okay, so I have to take first crack at that. <laughs> one, one, crack, one crack per customer. Yes. I, I, as a person who had to not indict Richard Nixon, we did name him an unindicted co-conspirator. I have long fought for the belief that there is nothing in the Constitution and nothing in that memo that is correct. A president is not immune from indictment for crimes he commits, and certainly a former president is not. I argued with Leon Jaworski twice, once before we indicted when Richard Nixon was the sitting president, and as soon as he resigned, I went back with other of my colleagues and said, okay, you said we'd be interfering with the presidency and impeachment was the right thing. Well, he's not president, he's just an ordinary citizen. And in the time it took to argue with Leon, who by the way, to one of our earlier questions, always called me a lady lawyer, one of the things that really pisses me off. <laughs> Hate that. Um, he got pardoned and a pardon is forever. And so we weren't able to. I think it is disgraceful. I don't know how to overcome it. Someone just has to write another memo and do it. You know, like what's wrong? It, it, it needs to be redone and rethought because there is, it's, it's a wrong-headed decision in the Office of Legal Counsel memo. So thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. Hello. Um, my name is Sarah. I live in Harlem. And I'm gluten-free and vegetarian, so I really got nothing for you. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, uh, I've been finding excruciating the situation with Dianne Feinstein. And you all have talked about being treated unequally as women lawyers, and then as you get older, or if you're a person of color, I mean, so it, when I look at what happened with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and now with Dianne Feinstein, it's, it's heartbreaking, and I'm conflicted, and I'm just wondering how you've been viewing this situation. Thank you. I think conflicted is a great word for it. I mean, it's possible that we can hold both of those thoughts in our mind, that we wish that RBG would have retired and maybe some of what's happened to the court would have been forestalled. And at the same time that we can acknowledge that that same sort of criticism is never lodged against a man, right? It is reserved for the woman. Um, and so maybe this um, goes back to Barb's conclusion on harassment, right? Candor and talking about the fact that things aren't always completely consistent and we have to resolve both of those trains of thought as we think about issues like that. Thank you. Woo, what she said. Hi, sisters. I'm uh, Josh from Astoria, Queens, also. Um, I'm going to disagree with my neighbor, though, and say it's Brooklyn Bagel Company, because they yeah. also have locations here in Manhattan, or it's Russ and Daughters, which is like yeah. the classic. Yeah. You got to do Russ and Daughters. Uh, so my question is about gun violence and gun violence prevention. I'm a member of Gays Against Guns. It's an activist group. We've had a mini success in this last week with the case at the Supreme Court uh, holding up uh, an Illinois law. Um, and then back in June, I think there was another one here in New York that upheld uh, New York concealed carry law. Do I have reason to trust the Supreme Court that they have some sort of change of heart about gun laws? Or is this just biding our times until another horrible Heller decision? Yeah, I don't trust them on this. Um, I, I don't see any appetite in the Supreme Court to stop expanding the Second Amendment. It's just the speed with which they're doing it. So it's, and just think, there was a long period of time between Heller and Bruin, so they happen in maybe spaced out increments, but I think that remains the trajectory. 
and no appetite in Congress to solve the problem either. Sorry. Thanks for your Sorry. activism, though. We appreciate you. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Harris. I would also disagree with that. Brooklyn Bagel is like good, but I'd say Tompkin Bagel or Murphy in New York City. Um, and if you're in the mood for pizza, Lindustry is really good in Brooklyn as well. Uh, yeah, I'm from Williamsburg. Writing so, this all down. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> um, yeah, so we kind of touched on Morvie Harper, and I kind of wanted to go back to that because that's what keeps me up at night. Um, my question is. After Arizona redistricting, uh, you know, in 2015 or so, we kind of saw that the dissent, which was led by Justice Roberts at the time, believed that the term legislature was to be unambiguously, I think, as he put it, refers to the state legislature, whereas we had, or I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg had taken the approach that refers to the legislative process. Um, I think we kind of have four justices who have already made their opinion clear on this, and I think Amy Coney Barrett's the last one, and I have to imagine she's going to go with them. So does that mean that we're just going to say from now on that you know, the legislature could just overturn whatever the people vote on? That could be the consequence of Moore v. Harper, which we did a show talking about what cases we thought were the most crucial. And that was the one I picked as the end of democracy, because it would be the end of democracy. And we're going to have to wait and see what they do with it. But it is a frightening prospect. And also, you'll all remember Eastman and his theory about independent state legislatures and what it means in his mind in terms of, well, they can just overturn any election. They can pass any rules, and it's not reviewable, even if it's in violation of the state, Supreme, of the state Constitution. The state Supreme Court can't even do anything. So it would be the end of judicial review. It's a horrible case. Can I, can I just add quickly, the one, the one potential beam of light is that they've asked for additional briefing on this, given what's happening in North Carolina. So it might indicate a willingness that they're if they're going to do it, they don't want to do it right now. Uh, and maybe there is a rethinking of this. We don't know the reason that they did that, but that's the one thing is to hold on to. Is there a historical background for that? I mean, like, prior to, you know... There's no historical background for any of this. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, they're making it up as they go along. And, it's, it's, and the only thing that changed in the court below was that they ele had a change in political um, composition. Yeah. That's all. But, I mean, it's a small mercy, right? If the court decides that they no longer have jurisdiction because North Carolina, the state case, is active again, then, like Kim says, at least the can gets kicked down the road, although I'm cynical enough to think that they're doing it to not have to decide right. the issue before 2024. At least now. Yeah. I, yeah. I think they will, and I don't think it'll be good. Thank you. Hi, my name is Dinah. I'm from England, but I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I can highly recommend Winner Bakery. It's a very and good winner. place. My question is about a phenomenon I've noticed recently of lawyers representing a client and being paid by somebody else. Oh. I'm thinking of Michael Cohen, Cassidy Hutchison, Abby Grossberg. And I'm wondering whether there are disciplinary consequences for those lawyers or should be because they are, um, you know, probably not representing the interests of their client if they're being paid by someone else. So it is, it is legally permissible for uh, legal fees to be paid by someone else, but the loyalty must always be with the client, not the person paying the fees. And I agree with you, it was very concerning. Cassidy Hutchinson, for example, talked about how her initial lawyer uh, was telling her all kinds of things, eh, just see, you don't remember. You know, they can never prove what you don't remember. 
uh, you know, and this was someone being paid by the Trump organization. And so that was very troubling. Um, one thing a court can do is do an inquiry to make sure that the person is getting good representation and that they're satisfied with that representation. But when someone else is paying the bills, there is, I think, an inherent conflict of interest. Uh, so, the, you know, an ethical lawyer would say, regardless of who's paying me, my loyalty is to the client. Uh, but, you know, we, we've seen examples uh, where those ethics uh, get outweighed by the dollars, it appears. Okay, so my phone has been making noises, you probably heard. It's 10 o'clock. We're really over time. And I hate to cut it off, so could we do a lightning round? Skip the introductions, just ask a quick question. One of Both. us gets a yeah. one-sentence answer. Both of you ask at the same yeah. time, the last two, and you <laughs> ask question, ask question, then we answer. Yeah. Sorry, we love everybody, but we would be here all night. But nobody else stand up. Yes. I see you. Do not stand up. <laughs> so we're, these are the last two questions, right? Go ahead. My, I, it's not a, I don't think it's going to be a quick question. But, okay. um, so the Virginia six-year-old who shot the teacher... Um, I sent this in as an email too, so you can answer it later if you want, but I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that are. He's not being charged, his mother is, for child neglect and unsafe firearms. And I'm just wondering, was he not charged so that they could charge the mom? Like, are they not able to charge both? Or because he's six, they're kind of backing yes, off so on I it? I would say that state charges and a shout out to Westchester County DA Mimi Roca, who I see sitting here, who, who makes these kind of calls. Um, and Mimi probably is the best person to answer this, but I, I think I'll short circuit your very complicated question that has a lot of new, no, no, it's a great question. And say that state charges are a matter of state laws. And also I think we, um, as prosecutors, often exercise our discretion in ways that would suggest that maybe a six-year-old right. shouldn't be charged, but that the mother should be held accountable within state law. It is a complicated question, especially in the context of firearms. Thank you. Okay. Okay, well, first off, Windsor Terrace Bagels in Brooklyn, hands down, gotta say. Lightning what is it? Windsor Terrace Bagels Windsor in Terrace, Brooklyn, around it. the corner from me. Jill, I thought it was very interesting when you said that you were the person to um, question a witness because you knew you would get a rise out of him. I know that you all, I'm sure, listened to Trump's deposition with great interest. Um, I'm wondering, what effect do you think it had that he was questioned by such an excellent female attorney, and what, um, what follow-up questions would you have asked if there are any? Robbie Kaplan is such a spectacular questioner and such a great lawyer. I thought she did a brilliant job. I wouldn't add anything. Same. I think her, her skills spoke far louder than her gender did, I just think. Yeah. I think I'd agree with that for sure. And you can compare her to Takapina, who was a bully and failed because of it. So I, I don't know that her gender played any role in it, although I will say that sometimes witnesses think you're more sympathetic if you're a woman, you're a better listener, and they will tell you more than they would a man. Yeah. But there are also times when a witness will tell you less because you're a woman. So you have to know the difference and you have to play it because the end result is you want to win and you want to get the information. All right, I'm told by our overlords yeah. this must be the last question. Yeah. <laughs> Barney Greengrass and uh, favorite authors. Oh my God, we'd be here till tomorrow. I mean, <laughs> one for each of you. 
Uh, I really like David Marinus, um, probably partly because he writes a lot about sports, and I love it. Like, he's written some amazing sports biographies. Um, when Pride Still Mattered about Vince Lombardi. He also wrote a really wonderful love letter to Detroit called Once in a Great City that I loved. I think his writing just leaps off the pages and comes to life. I, I can't even give you one. I am very obsessed with the um, history of the civil rights era, particularly in Alabama, but throughout the South, and I will read anything within that genre. I'm just picking one that I'm reading right now, and that's Bell Hooks, because she's reminding me not only of the history, but also uh, of the hope that can be had within that, and that's sustaining me right now. I love reading, so it's almost impossible to pick one. You know, I, if I go back, I'd say Dostoevsky, but for current, um, oh, Eric Larson. what a highbrow. Come on. <laughs> Crime and, and what a slog. No, Eric Chaucer. Larson, I'm, I'm going to top Barbara because he did Devil in the White City, which is about Chicago. And I loved how he does the two competing stories. Uh, I'm now got the vial and the, I forgot the name, it's about Winston Churchill, also by Eric yep. Larson. That was good. And the uh, Beast of the Gardens, which is about Nazis and a Chicago ambassador to Germany and his daughter falls in love with a Nazi and he's telling to tell Roosevelt, this is horrible, this is the Nazis, you've got to do something. So I like Eric Larson. Great question, Dan. Yes, that was great, thank you. So thank you all for being here tonight. Well, okay, so Doug, stay where you are. We have yeah. one favor to ask of all of you. If all of you could stand up so that we can get a selfie with you because we are so happy to spend this night with you. So just hold on. You guys stay right there. Stay where you are. I'm going to face this way. We are sorry we're going to bring our backs to you. Free from heart. It was so great to have you at our sisters-in-law live show. What did you think of the show? It was awesome. Although you didn't get the best bagel recommendations. Essa bagel, H and H bagel. Great night. All right, we'll take them under advisement.